0: Welcome to the uh, Master Shengyang Lecture in Chinese Buddhism. It's actually the inaugural lecture. Um, Buddhism in China has a long history. It goes back at least to the first century of the Common Era when Indian monks made the long journey up through Gandhara and then Central Asia onto China. They established Buddhism along the Silk Routes in oasis towns. And then from there, Buddhism spread to, to China proper. Um, and since China's had a long and, and prosperous complex and interesting history, um, producing many important expressions of Buddhism and preserving often um, texts, of the Indian texts or versions of Indian texts that disappeared in India and forms of practice also that disappeared in their homeland in India. China was also instrumental in the spread of Buddhism then to Korea, Japan and Vietnam. Um, and... We even have you know, Buddhism evolving over that long period right up to the modern period. So we see in current and present day China a resurgence of an interest in um, Buddhism. So the study of Buddhism in China is of great importance. It's important to understanding China in historical period and also in modern period and also to understanding Korean, Japanese and Vietnamese Buddhism. So in 2015, Agnes Chow, who has been a long-time friend um, and supporter of our Buddhist Studies program, approached us with the idea of raising funds to support the study and um, our promotion of the, uh, the, the, the promotion of the study of Chinese Buddhism. And uh, she went about doing that and has so far raised funds from at least 10 donors. Um, And we thought that one of the best options, the first things we would do would be to establish an annual lecture in Chinese Buddhism, which we uh, bring a prominent scholar of Chinese Buddhism, international scholar, to uh, Sydney to um, give an annual lecture to um, really bring the, you know, current research in this field to uh, the shores and to uh, uh, promote the study of Chinese Buddhism in Australia. So in that year, we established the Master Shenyang Lecture in Chinese Buddhism, and uh, with this funding we're raising, with more funding that we hope to raise, we hope also to um, establish uh, student postdoc studentships in the study of Chinese Buddhism, maybe even um, postdoc positions. Um, the lecture is named in honour of the late Chan Master Master Ying, who founded the Dharma Drum Mountain in 1989 as a world center for Buddhist education dedicated to academic research, Dharma practice, and the propagation and life value education. Master Shenyang received Dharma transmission in two major branches of Chan or Chinese, the equivalent of Zen Buddhism. Um, He completed a doctorate in literature at Risho University in Tokyo and served as the professor at various universities during his lifetime, he authored over 100 books, many of which were translated into other languages and published worldwide. Dhammadron Mountain and the Shenyang Foundation are actively engaged in the promotion of the academic study and support of the study of, of uh, Chinese Buddhism. For example, the major uh, conference in the field of the academic study of Buddhism is the International Association of Buddhist Studies Conference, and we held that some years ago at Dhammadron Mountain in um, Taiwan, uh, of which Agnes was one of the, the organizers, and I recently attended a symposium there on a particular class at Canonical Text, um, and Professor Taiza himself, our first speaker here today, was a visiting professor at Dhammadran Mountain in Taiwan for, for some period of time. So we're very pleased that uh, Professor Stephen Taiza, the T, DT Suzuki Professor of Buddhist Studies, and professor of religion at Princeton University in the United States, accepted our offer for him to uh, deliver the inaugural Master Sheng Lecture in Chinese Buddhism tonight. Professor Taizer is a significant scholar um, in the field of Chinese Buddhism, who has published on a great diversity of topics, but um, he is particularly interested in the interaction between Buddhism and indigenous Chinese traditions, brought into focus through a wealth of sutras, non-canonical texts, and artistic evidence unearthed along the Silk Route in Western China. Professor Taitha has an impressive CV and list of publications. This includes books such as Reinventing the Wheel, Paintings of Rebirth in Medieval Buddhist Temples, um, The Scripture of Ten Kings and the Making of Purgatory in Medieval Chinese Buddhism, and The Ghost Festival in Medieval China. Um, the lecture he will de- to deliver tonight is entitled "Healing Rituals in Medieval Chinese Buddhism." Please welcome Professor Teisa.
1: Thank you very much, Mark. It's a very kind introduction. Uh, it's a real honor for me to be here today, and it's an even bigger honor for me to deliver the first. Uh, inaugural Sheng Yan Memorial Lecture. Um, I had um, had known uh, Master Sheng Yan uh, Shifu for uh, all, almost 30 years, um, first having met him in Taiwan when I was a student there in the late 70s and early 80s. And then when I returned uh, as a very young scholar, uh, Dharmadra Mountain, the zhonghua Institute of Buddhist Studies. Uh, and the entire community there, um, have been wonderful nurturers of scholarship on all aspects of Buddhism. And so we who are scholars uh, have, have grown to, uh, to treasure the support of Dharma Drum as inspired by Master Sheng Yen's own example. Um, it was especially uh, important for our field that uh, Master Sheng Yen, as well as uh, the Zhonghua Institute and the Dharma Drum Mountain continue to support scholarship on Buddhism across all the Buddhist traditions, all sects of Buddhism, and subsects, and Buddhism in all times and places. So, uh, it's it's a real pleasure for me to be here, a real honor. Uh, so, let me thank uh, the uh, the donors uh, who gave the uh, funding for this lecture series uh, in honor of Master Sheng Uh Let me thank um, Agnes Chow, who uh, assisted with the, who was the organizer for for that funding. Um, And let me also thank the sponsors and hosts um, here at the University of Sydney, the School of Languages and Cultures, uh, and Professor Mark Along, my host, and Professor Chu Hui Ho as well. Uh, So thank you very much. So to my lecture. Today, I'd like to share my current research and present a paper that is really a work in progress. So this is not a completely polished uh, essay, uh, but it rather gives me an opportunity to think with you and to hear your, own, your responses to uh, my project as I'm just beginning it. Uh, for the past few years, I've been studying about 125 short prayers for the healing of the illness that survive among the Dunhuang manuscripts. I'll talk more about what Dunhuang manuscripts are in a moment. The liturgies aim to heal illness, but they don't employ medical techniques per se. Rather, they resort to religious techniques for curing illness. The primary mechanism of healing in these liturgies is karma, the Buddhist idea that by making a donation and performing a ritual or other good deed, the benefits from that donation can be dedicated to the curing of illness. At their most basic level, the liturgies raise the question of how one's deeds affect one's health. And so the working title for my book on this subject is Curing with Karma. The liturgies, in general, enact a transference of goodness from a donor to a sick person. They turn good deeds into good health. Some of the liturgies, in addition, include the practice of confession tacked on to that transfer. Furthermore the rites call upon deities as well as other agents including one's enemies or one's adversaries to assist in the cure. So the philosophical questions that I will raise today touch on karma and morality, on the logic of Buddhist ritual, concepts of health and well-being in Chinese Buddhism. This is where the Dunhuang manuscripts come from. These are the Mogao Caves, a complex of cave temples carved into soft cliffs at the western edge of the medieval Chinese empire, not far from the town of Dunhuang in Gansu province. Dunhuang is here. It's the yellow circle, and the Mogao Caves are the yellow square right here. Dunhuang was established as a Chinese military and administrative outpost as early as the first century of the Common Era. Over time, it grew into a thriving international town, providing a mechanism for the Chinese government to monitor its Western neighbors and to regulate commerce along the Silk Road. The red lines you see on this map represent trade routes during the eighth and ninth century, when Dunhuang served as a gateway between China and the various kingdoms of the period. Here are some of the various kingdoms of the period. In the year 800, for example, Dunhuang was a crossroads for interchange between a shrunken Tang empire in China over here to the east, the Pala dynasty and other Indian kingdoms to the south, the military dominant Tibetan empire, which in the year 800 was larger than the Tang empire, Uyghur and Turkish empires to the north stretching along here, along the steps, and to the west an Arab empire and further west a Europe shared loosely between Charlemagne and Rome. So this is 8th through 10th centuries. Let's fast forward to the year 1900. Shortly after the year 1000, Back then, libraries of several Buddhist libraries in the Dunhuang area were assembled together and sealed up in one shrine room in the complex of cave temples at Dunhuang. There, those manuscripts remained until the year 1900, when the young monk shown here, Wang Yuanlu, cut through a wall and discovered the fantastic deposit of manuscripts. Europeans came next. You see here Paul Pelliot, first dispatched from his post in the Ecole Francaise d'Extreme-Orient, where he was stationed in Hanoi in the year 1900. He was sent north uh, to purchase books in China, and from that time forward, planned how to collect artifacts of all types and manuscripts in Central Asia. In 1908, Pelliot was finally able, following in the footsteps of Marcus Aurelius Stein, the Hungarian geographer working for the Archaeological Survey of India. First Stein and then Palio, and then other scholars and explorers from Russia and Japan came to Dunhuang and carried away cartloads of handwritten manuscripts in the first few decades of the 20th century. Numbering around 60,000 or more individual books, and or significant portions of books, so 60,000 pieces of texts, some of them complete. The cache of texts constitutes one of the most important archaeological discoveries in the history of Buddhism and the history of China. Of these 60,000 manuscripts, about three quarters are canonical Buddhist texts. But in addition, there are thousands of non-canonical texts, including the healing liturgies and books of everyday prayers that I'm going to focus on today. About 2,000 manuscripts contain one or more liturgies for a wide range of rituals, including mortuary rituals and dedication of temples and so forth. And within that 2,000, about 125 different manuscripts contain healing liturgies. So it's not a small number. It's a significant number of texts contained pretty much only in the manuscripts uncovered at Dunhuang in the year 1900. What do they look like? As you can see, the the liturgies are relatively short compositions, ranging from 50 to 500 characters written in classical Chinese. Some of them are written out on a single sheet of paper, which, in the time between the earlier use of bamboo slips in the ancient period and the modern iPhone, uh, the, the piece of paper was probably the world's most convenient medium for written text. Perhaps it still remains so. The sheet of paper you see here is roughly 30 centimeters tall. It contains a single prayer for the healing of a young woman. It begins on this side, the front, and it continues on the back. Other examples of healing liturgies come in the form of a different binding format. They come in the form of a small booklet or codex measuring 15 by 11 centimeters when closed. This form of the Chinese book was particularly conducive to oral recitation, because you could flip the pages as you go, and there are not that many characters. There are not that many words written on each page. The booklets cover a wide range of rituals. In addition to rites of healing, they contain liturgies for memorial rites, graveside services, prayers celebrating Buddha's birthday and the ghost festival, inaugural blessings for newly donated statues, and fresh votive copies of sutras, as well as offerings for bountiful silk production as well as sacrifices to local deities. The healing liturgies then provide us with unprecedented information about the ritual repertoire of local Buddhist monks. This is a third format for textual production in which we find the healing liturgies. It's the traditional scroll format. Some compositions in the form of a scroll were written rather hastily, probably serving as rough drafts of prayers that a monk would embellish later when he finally produced a, a, when he produced a, a final copy for use in the service. But other scrolls were manufactured carefully and precisely, like the one you see here. their contents consisting of selections of refined speech. These exemplary prayer liturgies circulated widely in the medieval period during the through the 10th centuries, Dunhuang examples from the 8th through the 10th centuries. However, were it not for a few bibliographical lists compiled by pilgrims from Japan who came to China in search of authoritative guidelines for their own practice back home, if it weren't for the Dunhuang corpus, we would know almost nothing about the contents of those titles listed by ethnographic visitors from Japan. In recent essays, I've analyzed the physical properties and the codicological properties of the manuscripts in order to hypothesize who used these texts and under what circumstances. Many of the texts contain performance notes, so they contain the words of the liturgy and then smaller notes uh, indicating what portions to leave out and what portions to add depending on the circumstances of performance. Other work I've written recently explores the literary features of the compositions, but I'm not going to focus on that today. I want to instead look at their religious and philosophical underpinning. The healing liturgies are significant, I hope to show, because they shed light on the practice of religion and the culture of healing among a broad range of people during the medieval period. I'm going to argue that properly understood, these manuscripts represent a model of ritual action that was both widespread and important throughout Buddhism. In the religious universe of those who used our texts, illness can be cured by karma, the performance of an action, by donating cloth, burning incense, hiring monks to chant, making a confession, or decorating a statue, the patient or a donor was committing a deed, the consequences of which could then be dedicated to healing illness. In Buddhist terms, the results of a morally good deed are called merit, punya in Sanskrit, gunda in Chinese, and the crucial portion of the ritual is the transference of that merit, the parinamana, huisheng, to the sick person. None of this will strike you as anything surprising or unusual. And that is indeed my point. Whether scholars or practitioners of Buddhism, the mode of ritual based on the creation of good results and the assignment of those results was probably the most widespread practice in the Buddhist world. It relied on the most fundamental ideas in Buddhism, the doctrine of karma, according to which every deed has a result, and the notion of a religious division of labor between lay people and monastics. This is based on a concept of the ideal society. So in Buddhism, the ideal society, these two groups of specialists, a group of specialist monks and nuns on the one hand and lay people supporters on the other hand, these two groups were connected by a flow of gifts which ensured the good health both physically and spiritually, both now and in later lifetimes, of the individual believer as well as the collective Buddhist body, the Sangha in the broadest sense of monks, nuns, lay men and lay women. Healing rites are not the only kind of ritual that utilize these basic ideas about merit transfer, but they are one of of the most common forms of ritual. So common, practiced by almost everyone, founded on basic Buddhist ideas. If that's true of the healing rituals, why haven't they been explored in much depth until now? One reason is that the Dunhuang manuscripts still await careful study. And in fact, the world of Dunhuang studies is undergoing a renaissance. Number one, because the original texts and their most important catalogs are now almost fully available in public, either printed or online uh, through the International Dunhuang Project based at the British Library. And number two, uh, because of the rebirth of the Chinese academic world uh, in the past two decades. There are now more scholars of Dunhuang studies in China than anywhere else in the world. So most of our conferences are held in Chinese, whether we hold them in China, Japan, Europe, or Australia. Another reason is that modern scholarship has shied away from the phenomenon of curing with karma, and instead looked at other subcultures of healing in Buddhism. Both art history and buddhology have dealt very nicely with the figure you see here, the healing Buddha, by Shajod Guru Raja, medicine king, Yalshirva. Social historians have shown that despite the prohibitions of monastic regulations and the strictures of secular law, both of which outlawed prima facie, the practice of medicine by ordained Buddhist monks and nuns, nevertheless the practice of healing by monastics in fact flourished in China during the late medieval period. Many canonical texts were unequivocal in stating that because medicine was one of the skills that other religious professionals practiced and exploited, therefore Buddhist monks were forbidden to practice curing upon lay people. They were allowed and encouraged to develop the curing arts among, within the Sangha, among their brethren. Despite that stricture, Thanks to recent scholarship and sources ranging from canonical and non-canonical sutras to epigraphy, writing in stone, standard histories, and literature, we now understand that that dictum was quite frequently flaunted in daily life. This is the image I used as uh, an advertisement for my talk, and it gives some idea of just how widespread the practice of religious healing was during the medieval period. The painting is from Mogao Cave 103, completed during the High Tang, or the first half of the 8th century. The south wall of that cave illustrates portions of the Lotus Sutra. In this case, the chapter on the same uh, by Shajjah Guru, the healing Buddha. Here, in this painting, an older, sick person, shown bare-chested, sits in the center, supported by his relatives, who are praying for a cure. A believer or perhaps a preacher kneels in front of him on the mat reciting from a sutra, presumably the Vaishajya Buddha chapter of the Lotus Sutra. The liturgical manuscripts I'm going to discuss tonight differ from other traditions of healing practiced in medieval China. Unlike the Lotus painting here, the liturgies were not tied to any particular sutra nor were they the preserve of any specific school such as Tentai or Chan or Pure Land. Their commissioners, as often as not, were were both monks and nuns as well as lay people. Furthermore, their beneficiaries and patrons could also be spread between both lay people and the monastic order. The rituals were performed not by lay people, but by monks. And they were, in effect, simpler but more numerous cousins of the more involved ritual traditions carried out in the esoteric traditions of tantric Buddhism. As we'll see in a moment, the Dunhuang liturgies are based on the logic of karma rather than the tantric model of identification between a guest and host. Unlike the doctors and monks who actually took pulses, practiced medicine, and dispensed recipes, largely consisting of herbal cures, the monks who copied the healing liturgies could only be accused of practicing not medicine, but rather practicing the transfer of merit. So let's turn then to the ideas of karma and merit that are enacted in the healing liturgies. In recent articles published in Chinese journals and addressed to other scholars of Dunhuang studies, I followed a performative approach to the study of Dunhuang liturgical materials. By this, I don't mean anything fancy. Performative analysis is particularly helpful in explaining how good karma was created and then formally devoted to the curing of the patient. To make this clear, I'm going to offer now a a reading of the text of a representative healing liturgy drawing attention to the different steps of the liturgy. Uh, so I'll ask you to refer to the handout. Um, there should be more copies if you need a copy. Uh, thank you. So the idea of performance behind this uh, performative approach to ritual is, is, is fairly uh, uh, commonsensical. The liturgies themselves, the rituals were a performance so to make sense of the, the written words that accompany that performance, we relate the words to the steps of the ritual. We, write, we relate the words to the actions that are being undertaken in the performance of the ritual. Uh, so uh, I'm going to read uh, pages one and two. you uh, will contain one complete liturgy for a sickness, and I'm going to read... Um, I'm not going to read every word. I'm not going to read every single section, but I'm going to read selectively from it. And then I'm going to read parts of uh, Roman numeral two, a liturgy for a monk's sickness, because the second liturgy adds a confession component to the original. Uh, The first liturgy um, I have elsewhere called the most popular healing liturgy at Dunhuang because it survived. There are more copies of it that survived the than, than any other liturgy. There are 12 different copies of it among the 125 or so liturgical manuscripts. Um, some are in scroll format, and some are in booklet format. Many of them bear the title a healing liturgy, quite simply. The first section of the liturgy, which I've uh, added uh, a title and a number, So number one, praising Buddha's virtue, or tanda, uh, in Chinese. Um, The first section of the liturgy provides a grand preface to the entire ritual by singing the praises of the Buddha. It uses very abstract language. The language here is drawn from both Buddhism and indigenous Chinese philosophical traditions. It sets a serious tone by using the lofty language of parallel prose. The first two sentences begin quite abstractly. Let's look at the first first two sentences. Um, so parallel prose is arranged in couplets primarily. Uh, and the, the the couplets mirror each other. Uh, so the, the first two sentences in under 1A, I say, the substance of awakening hides and emerges, abolishing 100 errors with the marks of truth. That's the first line, the second line in the couplet. The Dharma body is profound and clear, perfecting 10,000 virtues through proper comportment. So to look at the parallelism, uh, it's clear in the Chinese. Uh, if you read Chinese, it's the first two lines are force, have a four plus six, four plus six construction, four words and then six lines per line. And the words within the couplet mirror each other. So substance of awakening is a parallel to body of Dharma. The two verbs hiding and emerging are parallel to the two verbs is profound and is clear and so forth. I'm not going to continue with the linguistic details but I'm happy to answer questions about them later. So that's uh, one A. Uh, let's look at the, the next couplet, one B, which refer to the physical features of the Buddha's body, his golden colored skin, and his urnakesha, the uh, a wisp of hair between uh, his eyes that emits a golden ray of light. So the, the, the sentences read, thus the golden hue envelops all covering the suns and moons of the Great Thousand World, the jade wisp of hair casts its hues, brightening the chin and kun of 10 billion universes. So these are the opening praises of the Buddha. And after these two couplets, uh, the Buddha is brought down to earth. In, In the first two couplets, he is praised as a transcendent figure who is overpowering, overly awesome, overly bright, brighter than all the stars and moons and suns, Um, the text then turns to bring him closer to people who may be suffering illness. I'm going to summarize the uh, the, the next section, C, D, E, and F, rather than read them. The liturgy in these sections refers to the way that the Buddha himself succumbed to illness and how the Buddha enacted his own death lying between the twin trees at Kushinagara. It also makes the Buddha responsible for the teaching of Vimalakirti, who famously, no, this is Vimalakirti who famously displayed the signs of sickness as an expedient device and magically enlarged his humble dwelling to cosmic proportions in order to accommodate a host of visitors. So the Buddha suffered sickness. The Buddha passed away himself into Parinirvana, And the Buddha is responsible for the key layperson associated with healing in Buddhism, the Kirti. Up to this point in section one, the liturgies made no direct reference to the ritual at hand. Other than the oblique references to the Buddha's abilities and Vimalakirti's illness, the word spoken could serve as a sermon introducing any Buddhist ritual. The second section of the liturgy, however, turns attention directly to the actors in the ritual and their reasons for performing. Some liturgists, in fact, title this section, as you see it there, number two, Purpose of the Ritual, Jai It's not about the Buddha. Instead, it identifies the sponsors of the rite, the beneficiary, and what the rite is supposed to achieve. Written in rather clunky classical prose, not in parallel prose, so there's a linguistic shift in this section, it states, and now the purpose of the donor seated in front chanting is to make a donation on behalf of such and such a person suffering from illness. Our Our liturgy uses the words, literally, here, such and such a person, Mo This expression is frequently used in liturgical manuscripts, which are formularies. And they were read aloud on different occasions for different individual sponsors. When conducting the rite, the performer would fill in these words with the name of the sick person. So section two, the intention thus announced. In the third section, the liturgy turns to the patient reverting again to polished parallel prose. Sometimes this section offers both praise and blame, first touting the patient's virtues, but then noting what evil deeds he or she might have committed to cause the illness. In any event, the section always refers to the patient's sickness. It reads, as you see, as follows, Ah, the sick one, now after his cold and heat lack timeliness and his nourishment goes against the standard. His contagious sickness has flowed to his five emotions. His illness now envelops his six receptacles, internal parts of the body. His strength is waning in movement and rest, and he fears the two rats gnawing away the vine. His mood is disturbed day and night, and he's afraid of the four snakes destroying the basket. So note here... The vagueness of the description of the illness. Almost any illness would fit this description. It's concerned more with affect than it is with physical condition. The liturgy stresses the patient's anxiety and uncertainty, what we might now call the patient's mood disorders. It invokes well-known parables, including one that compares the ills of human existence to a man in a well clutching onto a vine which rats are about to chew through. The fourth section, which I'm not going to read aloud, is sometimes called the ritual area. It refers to the actions performed by sponsors and officiants. Sometimes the discussion is very concrete. and and there's reference directly to burning of incense, decoration of statues, offering of money, or cloth. By contrast, our liturgy speaks rather abstractly. Let's turn to the fifth section on the other side. In the logic of Buddhist ritual, the making of offerings constitutes a deed, and all deeds have consequences. So this next and most crucial section of the ritual deals with those results. We have to remember that in Buddhist ritual, the consequences of action do not necessarily attach to the original actor. The original actor can dedicate or offer the results of his or her actions to others. And that's precisely what's accomplished in this segment of the liturgy. In my analysis, this is the crux or hinge of the entire ritual. If you don't say these words, if you don't accomplish the transfer, the dedication, then the good results will go unclaimed. By the same token, the shortest, most stripped down version of a healing rite, and I have found a few examples of these, consists only of this single section. So if you had to give up all of the other words, this is the one section you would preserve. Our Section 5, and it's 5.1, reads, We take this merit and the fortunate causes from the chanting and use them first to ornament the sick one himself. I'm going to take a minute uh, to talk about this word ornament because it's a a fancy word and it covers up this very important crux of the (laughs) ritual. The word ornament in Chinese is not without significance. Our colleagues in Indian studies know this word in its Sanskrit guises, especially the fundamental concepts of aesthetics and poetic compositions, alamkara. I give the related words uh, here on the slides. Uh, The philologist, Jan Gonda, and the aesthetician Ananda Kumaraswamy, uh, talked a lot about this word uh, 60 and 70 years ago. Swami insisted that the concept of decoration or adornment or ornamentation was an essential virtue for both deities and works of art. He suggested, and here I'll, I'll quote him briefly, it may be universally true that terms which now imply an ornamentation of person or, or things for aesthetic reasons alone, originally implied their proper equipment, in a sense of completion. Without which satisfaction, neither persons nor things could have been thought of as efficient. In the same manner, Kumaraswamy continued, apart from his attributes, deity could not be thought of as functioning. So to apply this basic idea to the liturgies at hand, The action of ornamenting a sick person is not simply an alteration of external appearance. It's not simply a matter of changing the person's physical symptoms. Rather, the act of ornamentation involves an ennobling, a raising up of the person, or a change in the person's character. Some rituals don't use this fancy language. They speak more plainly, substituting for the word ornamentation terms that indicate a transfer or carrying over. So you see those in the middle here, uh, words that directly say something more like to redirect or transfer, or to offer assistance, or to provide help. The same action is being performed in a different linguistic register. You're ornamenting the person, you're ennobling them, you are giving them help. You are redirecting the benefits to the person. The wording in our liturgies follows good Chinese usage, but the basic ideas behind this part of the healing ritual are widespread throughout the Buddhist world. My colleague Peter Skilling has explored a number of different words in Indic and and in Southeast Asian languages, used at this point in other rituals of merit transfer. And his English translations for those words include giving over, dedicating, transferring, or ascribing, allotting, rejoicing in, benefiting, rewarding, and blessing. Consider the roof tiles in this photograph. The roof tiles have been given by local donors and pilgrims at Bulguksa, which I visited in 2008 in South Korea. The tiles usually state the donor's name and provide a short wish that assigns the benefit to a specific person, a deceased parent, a specific cause like world peace, or all sentient beings. The prayers, as you can see, are written in a variety of languages. Including Burmese, Japanese, uh, Chinese, and Thai. We could raise examples from other kinds of liturgies throughout the Buddhist world. Here we see roof tiles given as a good deed, the good results of which are dedicated to other people. We could look in Japanese liturgies at written prayers, or ganmon, or other forms of prayers accompanying ritual transfers. Let's get back to the healing ritual at hand. Uh, The next section of the liturgy, I'm I'm going back to uh, section (laughs) six, um, explains how the merit that's just been transferred it's just being assigned to a person. So how should the person enjoy that merit? The boons, the good results, are cast in the form of a prayer, a wish, or a vow on the part of the sponsor. These three words in English, vow, wish, prayer, express different senses of the same underlying Chinese term, yuan usually in the term of Wei Yuan or Yuan Shi. The prayer section in this liturgy, the first first prayer section reads, and I'm going to read it aloud, A, B, C, and D, we pray that the 404 illnesses dissipate like clouds because of this, because of this dedication, and that the five coverings and ten afflictions be extinguished on account of this. We pray that medicine king and medicine superior, Vaisajaraja and Vaisajaraja Samgata, confer spiritual recipes that sound, observer, and wondrous sound of Alokiteshvara and Gudga dasvara, bestow their wondrous medicine. We pray that sickness of the body and sickness of the mind on this day be cleaned away, calm when sleeping and calm when awake. May his rising and resting be light and easy. May all his enemies and creditors, anyone to whom he owes money or life, share a portion of his merit, and cease being adversaries. May they release the sickness and return him to his former condition." In a minute we'll look at how our liturgies imagine this healing process to take place, but already it's clear that curing is a process rather than a single event. It's clear that it depends on the intervention of deities and that it requires the release of any debts and recriminations on the part of one's enemies. After attending to the patient's health, our liturgy seeks the full quota of the proverbial three wishes. It makes a second ornamentation, there under 5.2, this one directed at the sponsor of the rite, along with a second prayer specifying how those benefits should be enjoyed. And then it makes a third wish on behalf of past generations and sentient beings in general, without an accompanying formal ornamentation. Finally, the liturgy comes to an end with what I call a benediction. It's four syllables in Sanskritized Chinese, that is, Chinese that is made to sound as if it's reproducing Sanskrit uh, Mahaprajna. To conclude this reading of the structure of the healing ritual, the basic idea of curing with karma undergirds every step of the ritual. The words and deeds assure that karma is generated and then distributed to a wide range of beneficiaries. Let's look now at the uh, last uh, document uh, on page three. It's uh, Roman numeral number two, Liturgy for a Monk Sickness. This liturgy embeds another ritual structure within the sequence we just examined, it's still based on the logic of karma, uh, but it adds confession to the proceedings. Nothing is dropped from the basic structure of the healing liturgy we read already, but new elements are simply added. In terms of roles, the new ritual substructure adds a confessor, someone doing the confessing. It adds an audience or auditor who hears or authenticates the uh, who hears the confession. That's typically the body of monks in attendance, and it adds venerable figures, usually deities, who authenticate the confession. The deities who verify or authenticate the confession are invoked at the very beginning of the healing rite. On the handout, I provided the relevant paragraphs from the healing liturgy for a monk that's contained in a different small booklet. The first paragraph, number one, invocation, is a formal invitation to deities from other realms to descend to the ritual arena. The deities are not only Buddha's bodhisattvas and arhats, but also include dragons, the four great guardian kings, Mahadeva Raja and other gods. I'll read the text to give you some sense of how these are treated and the range of characters, the range of divinities who are invoked. Section 1A, invocation. Humbly, we invoke Buddhas of the three bodies and four forms of knowledge, of the five kinds of eye and six penetrations, so the most honored and powerful deities first. Next come bodhisattvas of the ten stages and ten kinds of mind, as numerous as dust and sand. Next are invoked innumerable shravakas, voice hearers or auditors of the four routes and the four fruits. Next, the great eight great classes and great dragon deities, the assemblies of the four heavenly kings. And finally, spirits hidden in darkness and manifest in space, both visible and invisible, in other words, those with the power of the path, and those with the mind of the stages. Then it continues, altering, humbly we pray that they emerge, they, all the deities thus invoked, emerge from concentration atop blossom platforms up there and descend down here to our Dharma gathering, Hui. We pray that on this day at this hour they authenticate what we are now about to state that is what we are now about to confess. The second section of the confession rite follows the earlier model we read, formally stating the purpose of the ritual. It refers to the assembled sangha serving as audience, and at the end it names the performer and the beneficiary. It reads, as you see in the handout, section two, purpose, and now we extensively welcome the pure assembly and open out the true vehicle. There is a great congregation of black robes in order. These are monks. And incense smoke wafts around the mass. Who is there, the prayer asks rhetorically, who is there to make the donation and carry out the actions of holding the incense burner and stating the prayers, donating clothing and alms bowl? Now, then, there is a service of fortune offered by Sir So-and-so on behalf of the sickness of Acharya So-and-so. Section three concerning the patient is similar to that section in the earlier liturgy we read. So, so if you look at section two, both the performer of the ritual, the donor, is a monk, and the recipient, the sick person, of the, the, the recipient of the merit and the beneficiary of the healing is also a monk in this case. The fourth section. The fourth section of all healing rites deals directly with the actions of the named owner or performer. When the confession is used in the healing rite, the words spoken by the confessor are placed in this section. Our example is intended for a monk, so the misdeeds that are recited are abrogations of the rules, the special rules designed for monks. This section opens with a general introduction and admission of guilt, and then moves on to specific monastic transgressions. Uh, So we can read these. This is one of the shorter confessions uh, in the liturgies. The Vinaya master himself says, I was born and am living during the end of the Dharma. In appearance and name, I have left the householder's life. But my practice of the precepts is always insufficient. So I often commit the sin of neglect or transgression. In walking through viharas and stupas, and sitting and sleeping on the field of gold, the valuables belonging to Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, I have coveted to no end. Such sins as these are immeasurable and without limit. Like the sand of the Ganges, it's hard to know their number. So now, before the pure assembly, I confess and ask forgiveness for my past mistakes. May all my creditors share in the merit. May they resolve their enmity and give up their bonds and give rise to pleasant thoughts. May they release the sickness and return me to my former condition. Note here that the prayer ends by referring to the confessor's donation, presumably its cloth, because that's all that a monk would possess in order to give away. And it includes the plea that adversaries release any sickness they may be causing. The remaining sections of this liturgy, Uh, Section 5, ornamentation. Section 6, prayer. Section 7, benediction. Follow the same model that we read in the earlier liturgy, so I'm not going to repeat them here. But let me say a few words about confession before I talk about the process of healing. As we know from the work of scholars such as Guo Liying, Wang Jian, Shang Kai, and others, confession occupies a considerable place in Chinese Buddhism. Historically, way back when, perhaps growing out of the practice of fortnightly confession and recitation of the Patimoksha by monks and nuns, the ritualized confession of bad deeds was adapted to many settings in Buddhism. Among the healing liturgies from Dunhuang, there are separate confession liturgies for monks, nuns, for regular lay people, for lay people who were government officials. Among our texts, the dossiers of transgressions by nuns are particularly long and detailed, perhaps reflecting the interests of guess who? The monks who likely officiated at these healing rituals. For nuns, the sins in our Dunhuang materials include accepting the donation of decorated or embroidered cloth rather than fabric, challenging teachers or elders, because nuns were always supposed to be subservient not only to their older sisters, but to all monks, slandering their sisters or pointing out their omissions, setting aside common property for personal use, and meeting out heavier punishments than justice would otherwise demand. So each class of person has their own specific sets of misdeeds. For government officials, the enumerated crimes include brash and wasteful behavior, the intemperate taking of life, deceiving good people, arrogance and rude treatment of others, and exploiting one's position for personal gain. Although the particulars are different according to one's social class, one's gender, one's seniority, and one's status within the Buddhist world, nevertheless, some such confessions always end with the admission of guilt. They claim that all sins have now been aired publicly in front of the Sangha, that nothing is being concealed, and they hope that the Buddhas respond favorably to the contrition expressed by the confessor. Furthermore, for all of their reliance on the ideology of karma and public enactment of confession, the liturgies also emphasize the importance of sincerity and the pure intentions of the person confessing. How then do the liturgies imagine that healing takes place? As we've seen, the method of diagnosis in the healing liturgies is consistent. They describe the patient's illness as a problem of disequilibrium. That's the problem. Her four great elements are out of kilter, or she feels cold and hot intemperately, or she's unable to rest. Healing by ritual, furthermore, is apparently undertaken only after medical treatment has failed. Most of our liturgies refer directly to the unsuccessful administration of secular medicine. They state, although he has, and here I'm quoting, although he has taken prescriptions of the human realm and various kinds of remedies of the king of physicians of this world, still he has not experienced recovery or cure. So he's consulted a doctor, or he's gone to an acupuncturist, or he's gone to a medical healer, an herbalist. They didn't work. Our liturgies are also consistent in in attributing the cause of illness ultimately to the deeds of the patients, either in this lifetime or in an earlier lifetime. So, to get back to my earlier question, how is one's medical condition affected by the commission of good deeds? This is worth exploring. First, the merit-making in these rituals is not simply a matter, as modern scholars or some modern Buddhists might claim, of an individual performing a simple action and then bearing the result. Rather, gods and other spiritual beings are actively involved in the process of curing. Most healing liturgies begin by praising the Buddha, suggesting that the whole rite takes place under the watchful eye of the world's ultimate physician. But other deities are involved in the healing process as well. Foremost among them, as we've seen, are the paired bodhisattvas, Vaisajra Guru Dajan, and Vaisajra Samgata. They are mentioned most frequently but the Mahayana Pantheon contained other medical specialists as well. It, it was a veritable network of health care providers, many of whom could be called to minister to the sick. Aside from the traditions, uh, I, I call him a primary care bodhisattva by Shajaguru. aside from the primary care bodhisattva, the medical practice, the medical consortium, included Avalokiteshvara and Gadgadasvara, the Bodhisattvas of the Ten Directions, and even dragons and other imposing beings. They are asked to bestow medicine on the patient. Thus, the Buddhist healthcare system includes what in the U.S. we call Medicare, which is medical insurance, and Medicaid, which provides for medications. Other liturgies seek a referral to a specialist, the Buddha's own physician, divaka these prayers ask, quote, may Jivaka's wondrous medicine be sprinkled on the patient and infuse his body and mind, the spiritual broth of prajna, wisdom, ever flowing among his four great elements. Not only are deities involved in curing one's sickness, so too are one's enemies, perhaps unknown to the individual from this or previous lifetimes. As we've seen repeatedly, the prayer sections earmark some of the merit produced by the patient for his adversaries or creditors. Having received good fortune, the ire of one's enemies should be upended, and they are supposed to release the sickness that they've inflicted upon the patient. How do our liturgies imagine this process to take place? As the prayer to Jibaka shows, the words spoken during the course of the ritual shy away from clinical language or the description of specific symptoms. Instead they turn to metaphors. They use metaphors of anointment, dropping a liquid on the head, infusing infusing a body with moisture, fertilization, general climatological well-being. One liturgy asks quote, may the crown of his head be anointed with ghee and the reign of the Dharma enrich his body. May 10,000 fortunes gather like clouds, and the thousand calamities roll away like fog. Other prayers suggest that the illness will be carried away by a fragrant wind, that fever will be calmed by a cooling cloud, that congestion will clear like the bright moon, that impurity will be cleansed by the blazing light of the sun. Many liturgies conceive of health as a moist therapy. Returning to good health, the patient will be infused with dharma or fertilized by rain. He will imbibe sweet dew. He will be sprinkled or doused with medicine, and his scalp will receive the treatment of ghee. Not only do our liturgies demonstrate the complexity of healing by drawing several agents into the process, they also show that other parties, in addition to the patient, can receive the benefits of the religio-medical intervention. The rituals divide up the results of the sponsor's donation. The spiral of charity usually begins with the patient herself or himself, but most liturgies move outward from there, devoting a second batch of fortune to the sponsor of the ritual and his or her family independence. And beyond this, a third round of merit can be dispatched to deceased ancestors and all sentient beings. In this respect the liturgies are very much in keeping with the line of interpretation in modern Buddhism that Thich Nhat Hanh has called inter-being. Though our liturgies do not sermonize about the importance of charity towards others and breaking down the wall, separating self from other, they consistently include other people and all sentient beings as beneficiaries of the donor's act. The inner transformation of the patient and the cleansing of intention on the part of the donor are important parts of these liturgies as well. However, the liturgies do not accord well with modern assumptions about the centrality of the individual. So unlike modern interpreters, our texts don't make a distinction between practical benefits and ultimate concerns. They don't distinguish between simply curing illness and ultimately achieving enlightenment. They don't emphasize the difference between imminence and transcendence. Many of the prayers in our liturgies connect good health or the curing of illness to other states of good fortune. A strong body, a calm disposition, a long life, not suffering an unhappy death, birth in a pure land in the presence of a Buddha, an afterlife of rest and ease, gaining certain passage to enlightenment. These good results are all part of the same cloth. They're not reducible to an individual's purified intention or the achievement of authenticity or wisdom, and they don't say anything about it, a distinction between this-worldly and otherworldly. Our liturgies are an excellent reminder that the process of healing is just that. It's a process. Although the patient might be sprinkled with sweet dew immediately, the final stage of the whole process might take many lifetimes because that's what it takes to achieve enlightenment. Indeed, many of our healing liturgies are similar to prayers written for funerals and memorial services. They lay out a path that begins now, continues through the beneficiary's future lifetime, and ends only vaguely with being reborn in the presence of a Buddha. Like life and death, Healing is part of a long cycle that takes many lifetimes in the pre-modern Buddhist world. Buddhist cosmology and traditional understandings of rebirth, then, are central to these liturgies. To summarize and conclude, the process of healing outlined in the liturgical manuscripts from Dunhuang is pervaded by ideas of karmic causation, the making and transference of merit, and Buddhist notions of donation As we've seen, there are numerous participants in the cycle of exchange, including donors and patients, adversaries from other lifetimes, the Buddha, Bodhisattvas, and other deities of healing, other family members, and potentially all sentient beings. The system makes sense, or at least I take it as a principle of hermeneutical generosity that we ought to try first to understand how these liturgical texts work. My analysis of their performative structure and their language is intended to do this. Nowhere do the liturgies voice suspicion about the impossibility of the gift. Nowhere do they talk about gaps in the process of exchange. Nor is there worry that only excessive gifts or perfect generosity can fulfill the true virtue of charity or donation or dhamma. The second section of the liturgies is... Perfectly explicit in stating what the intention of the ritual is. It says, quote, The expressed purpose is to establish a celebration of fortune, merit, on behalf of a person suffering illness. This communion can be large, can be complex, can involve different beings of different orders, but it's based consistently on notions of karma and merit and with that I thank you